Our scripture verse is from Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to start with 117. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, and the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What have I vowed I will pay? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. All right, well, welcome, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Steve, and I am the new associate pastor here at Regen. If you haven't met me yet, or if I haven't met you, hopefully we'll have a chance to do that soon. It's been a month since we've been here. It's crazy to think that this first month is already over. It's gone by really quickly. And I just want to begin this morning by saying thank you, because you guys have welcomed us in. You've been extremely generous and hospitable to me and to my family. You've played with our kids and helped us move and brought us some excellent meals. And so we're just really, really grateful for the opportunity to be here and to be a part of this community and for all the ways, again, that you guys have welcomed us in and made us feel like we're at home. So thank you for that. A couple weeks ago, Albert came and said, hey, you want to speak on the first? And we'd been here like 10 days or something at that point. And I thought, wow, Albert is a really generous guy asking me to speak so soon. Of course, I'll speak on the first. No problem. Then a couple days later, I'm watching the Patriots play the Ravens. And the announcer says something to the effect of these two teams are battling it out for the opportunity to continue on in the postseason and eventually get to their goal of the Super Bowl, which is going to be on February 1st. <laughs> and I had this moment of like, oh, <laughs> I see what he did there. Okay. <laughs> the life of the associate pastor. But in all seriousness, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share with you guys. And um, Albert is actually speaking at another church today, so he's not like taking the day off or anything like that, just, just in case you're curious. Again, grateful for this opportunity. We are hitting a pause on our First Peter series, and we're going to talk a little bit about Jonah, and particularly about prayer from Jonah's perspective. So let's begin this morning by praying, if you will. God, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be together and to have a space where we can gather and read scripture and sing, to worship together, to take communion, and just to even be in the same place where we can see each other and, and continue to grow in our relationships with one another and, of course, with you. And so I just ask that you would take this time to uh, remove distractions 
that may be weighing on us and to speak to us through the story of Jonah, this incredibly flawed but very human character that we encounter in this small book in the Old Testament and teach us this morning some new things, some fresh things about prayer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want us to start this morning by considering a pop culture phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that's sort of been growing in prevalence here over the last several years. I want to share just a couple of characters, lead characters from television shows of the last couple years. Some of them are a little bit more current. And this list could be much longer, but I've just chosen these three somewhat randomly, I guess. The first is Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Bauer in the show 24. This is for my friend Bruce, who is a fan of the 24. If you haven't seen it, Jack Bauer is this anti-terrorist agent who uses extreme measures, including torture, as a means to protect his family and our country. A more recent show, Kerry Washington plays Olivia Pope on the show Scandal. I have never seen this show, so I did a little bit of research on it this week, and I discovered a reviewer who said this, Olivia Pope is this character who sort of cleans up the messes of the White House, kind of covers all the scandals. Um, but according to this review that I saw, she has the messiest personal life of any character in primetime. And then the reviewer says, and you will love her for it. Hold on to that idea for a moment. And then just in case you think that these are only like really serious or really action-packed sort of shows and characters that this phenomenon shows up in, here's Steve Carell as Michael Scott, of course, from The Office, everyone's favorite bumbling, inappropriate boss. And again, there are many, many others that I could cite. What do these characters have in common? What do they have in common? They are what people in the business, and I know some people in the business, so I feel like I can say that. They're what people in the business would refer to as anti-heroes. Anti-heroes. According to Merriam-Webster, an anti-hero is a protagonist or a notable figure who is conspicuously lacking in heroic qualities. Now, this is really interesting, right? Why? Are these kinds of characters becoming more prevalent? Why are we seeing more and more shows with these types of characters in them? For decades, the prototypical American hero or superhero was Superman. Superman. Superman is not popular anymore. Why? It's because some would argue he is too good. He is too perfect. His only weakness is this weird rock from outer space. Who can relate to that, right? A TV writer today might say that Superman would be a much more interesting, well-rounded, relatable character if he had a drinking problem or if he was in therapy. Some of you are like, there's a show there, and I'll just let you take that and run with it as long as you give me some credit for it when you make a ton of money. <laughs> now again, Jack Bauer, Olivia Pope, Michael Scott, these are not necessarily characters that we would want to emulate. We might not want our kids to grow up and be like them, but we watch these shows and if you watch these shows, you become a fan of their characters. You begin to root for them and even love them in a sort of way. And again, the question is, why? Why do we see this rise in the anti-hero? I think there's a couple of different reasons, but the one I want to focus on is that I think it's because we realize, we know at some sort of deep intuitive level that life is complicated. And it's not always easy to know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, and maybe even more importantly, we resonate with the tensions and the ambiguities and the frustrations that these characters, these anti-heroes face. Tensions between good and evil, love and justice, our desires, the things that we want, and meeting the needs of others. 
Now, what in the world does this have to do with Jonah? Jonah is one of Scripture's most enduring characters. It's a really small book. In fact, in your pew Bible, if you open it up, it's just two pages. You can just look at the whole thing right there, and you can read through it in about 15 minutes. But despite being such a small book, Jonah persists in everything from children's stories to art. Jonah and the whale is one of the most depicted Old Testament scenes in all of art. And in our broader cultural imagination, there's a little bit of Jonah in everything from Pinocchio to Finding Nemo to Moby Dick. But Jonah is a biblical anti-hero. He's this very flawed, very human character who is conspicuously lacking in heroic qualities. But we find ourselves again and again in this story, again, in the struggles and the tensions and the ambiguities that Jonah faces. Now, the book of Jonah is a prophetic book. It's in a section of the Old Testament that a lot of times is referred to as the minor prophets. And a prophet is a person who is called by God to speak on God's behalf. Usually a prophet will be confronting something, sometimes a king, sometimes a group of people, sometimes a specific behavior. And I think it's really important that we note that Jonah is a prophetic book and not a different genre like history or law or poetry or something like that. Now a prophet will usually have something to say along the lines of, hey, you person, group of people, whatever, you guys are doing the wrong thing. You've gotten way off the path and you need to come back, get your act together, get back on the right track. And what's interesting about Jonah, and even unique about Jonah, is that among the prophetic books, he has sort of a special role. In some ways, this book is more about, the story is more about confronting the reader than it is about the confrontation that actually happens in the story. What do I mean by that? Well, some of us will look at a story like Jonah and say, this is ridiculous. Dude gets swallowed by a fish? Like, that doesn't happen, right? If anything, this is just a parable or a myth or just a nice little kind of moral lesson for us to draw something from. Others will look at a story like this and kind of take the unquestioning approach and just say, hey, it's in the Bible. It's got to be true. And what's interesting, the book of Jonah confronts both readings of the story. First, Jonah confronts the rationalist approach, this approach that, again, things are easily explainable by what we can see and measure, confronts us with the truth that the world doesn't always work in a mechanical way. A plus B doesn't always work out to C. There are some things that are outside of our ability to explain rationally. There's this sort of weirdness to the universe. And then to the literalist, Jonah confronts us with the truth that God doesn't always work according to our logic. Jonah is supposed to be the good guy. Jonah is the prophet, the Israelite, the one who's going to speak on God's behalf, but he's the one who's always messing up in this story. And the bad guys, and there's a couple different bad guys in this story, seem to get it. And they, particularly the baddest of the guys in the story, get off scot-free. So a literalist reading of Jonah runs the risk of reducing this story to something like, you know, don't do anything bad or you'll get eaten by a fish. And there's just a lot more to this little book than that sort of simple kind of lesson. Jonah is a story that is shaded in grays. It's not a black and white sort of story, and that's what makes it so confrontational and so interesting. Tullian Tavigian says in his book, Surprised by Grace, that Jonah 
is a storied presentation of the gospel, a story of sin and grace, of desperation and deliverance. It reveals the fact that while you and I are great sinners, God is a great savior. So Jonah is an anti-hero. He's our anti-hero this morning. He's a prophet who is not very good at being a prophet. And yet I think there's a lot of stuff for us to learn from him, particularly when it comes to this area of prayer. So just a quick overview of the story. There's sort of two movements to the book. The first movement is the first two chapters. The second movement is the second two chapters. I think we're pretty familiar with how Jonah gets it wrong in this first movement. The story begins with God coming to Jonah and giving him a message. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now Nineveh was a bitter enemy of Jonah's people, the Israelites. The Ninevites had oppressed the Israelites for some time. It's not a stretch to say that this is akin to God coming to a Polish Jew in 1939 and saying, I want you to go to Berlin and speak out against the Nazis for their sin has come before me. So Jonah thinks about that for a moment and is like, no, I do not want to do that. He wants absolutely nothing to do with that. So he books a trip on a ship to a place called Tarshish, which is like if you're asked to go to Afghanistan, this is like booking a trip to Hawaii. It is literally and metaphorically the complete opposite place, as far away from Nineveh as Jonah could possibly get. So Jonah gets on this boat, and the boat takes off, and as he tries to run away from God and this assignment that he doesn't want, this great storm comes up, and it begins to threaten the ship. And Jonah is fairly casual about it. He falls asleep, and he's sleeping on the boat. The sailors are trying to keep the thing from going down. Finally, they go, hey, there's a prophet of God in the back. We should wake him up, and maybe he can do something about this. They wake him up, and Jonah's like, yeah, you're right. This is my fault. You just throw me in the ocean, and everything will be fine. And they're like, I don't know if that's a great idea. And Jonah's like, no, no, no. This is really what has to happen. So eventually, he gets them to throw him overboard, and sure enough, the storm is calm and the ship is saved. And what's interesting about that scene is, again, the quote-unquote bad guys, the Gentile sailors, end up worshiping God as a result of this moment. Anyway, Jonah gets thrown into the sea, and this is, of course, where we have the scene with the fish. God sends this big fish to swallow Jonah. Now, it's obvious to see how Jonah gets it wrong in this movement of the story. Running off in the complete opposite direction of God is not wise or that God has asked you to go is not wise. I think we sort of understand that, right? But after the fish incident, what's interesting is that Jonah does the right thing in some ways, and he still gets it wrong. At the beginning of chapter 3, we read, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So again, it looks like Jonah gets it right. It says, in fact, right there in the text that he obeyed. But look a little bit closer at this scene. Nineveh, it says, is this large city, and it takes three days to get all the way through it. But Jonah only goes in a day's worth, not even halfway, not all the way through, only about a third of the journey. 
But hey, Jonah's here, right? Like he made it there. He's in Nineveh. And now he has the opportunity to let him have it. Just unleash a flurry of prophetic vengeance on his enemies. So what does Jonah say? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words. In the Hebrew, it's actually only five words. Short and sweet. Now contrast this with Nahum. Nahum is in your Bible just a few pages to the right. He's another prophet who is called by God to speak against the great city of Nineveh. Now if you're in the chapel, you should cover the kids' ears because this is fairly graphic. Nahum says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with their whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? That's how you prophesy. (laughs) Nahum brings it and then he just drops the mic, right? (laughs) And... That's only seven verses. There's three chapters of this. Again, compare this descriptive, graphic oracle to Jonah's eight-word warning. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will expose your nakedness to the nations. Verses 40 days, or you're going to be overthrown. Do you feel the difference there? Jonah's the kid who's like, I'll do my chores, but I am not going to be happy about it. Eugene Peterson writes, the first movement in the story shows Jonah disobedient. The second shows him obedient. Both times, Jonah fails. First is this external sort of, you know, running in the opposite direction. The second is much more of an internal heart issue. But both times, Jonah fails. But here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy part about this story. His pathetic prophecy works. It works phenomenally well comically well. The king of Nineveh repents. He orders everyone in the city to wear sackcloth, including the animals, which is kind of a funny thing to think about. (laughs) The whole city confesses and turns back to God, all because of these five words. It's the best, most effective sermon of all time. And then, this is my favorite part. The story ends with this bizarre scene where Jonah leaves Nineveh, angry and disappointed. He goes up on a hill, hoping that maybe just somehow destruction will end up coming and he'll have a front seat to watch it burn and then that doesn't happen and so Jonah becomes even more angry and disappointed so angry in fact that he wants to die he wants to die after the greatest sermon of all time and so it's interesting because it's in this place where Jonah our anti-hero angry and wanting to die finally gets it right in Jonah 4 we read it displeased Jonah exceedingly It, of course, being the sparing of Nineveh. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah needed some therapy. <laughs> now, this is one of two times in the story where it says that Jonah prayed. So twice Jonah fails and twice Jonah prays. So I want to make a couple of observations about the way that Jonah prays. First, he is honest. God, I'm mad. I'm mad at you. I'm disappointed. This did not turn out the way that I wanted or the way that I expected. So kill me. <laughs> it is difficult to be more honest than that, right? When we pray, God is not put off by our honesty. He's not afraid of our honesty. We can be honest with God. And I have no idea what you are going through right now. It may be a trial. It may be a storm or a fish. Maybe you are disappointed. Maybe you're angry with God about something. And so Jonah teaches us, reminds us, encourages us. You don't need to sugarcoat those things for God. You can be honest about them. You can pray honestly about those things. So Jonah's honest. He's also theological. Notice what he prays in verse 2. God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to spare Nineveh. And how does Jonah know this? It's because he knows that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Many scholars will point to these five things as the sort of five fundamentals of Old Testament theology. Whatever else you and I might think about how God is revealed in the Old Testament, the Israelites thought of God this way, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, reluctant to send disaster. This formula, if you will, shows up several times in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Joel 2, Nehemiah 9, and in several Psalms, including 86, 103, and 145. So Jonah prays honestly, he prays theologically, and then he also prays scripture. And this brings us back to the text that Eric read for us earlier from Jonah chapter 2. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, prays to the Lord as God. Now think about that for a moment. You're in the belly of a fish. How are you going to pray? To be totally honest, I would panic. I would be totally panicked. Get me out of this fish. It would be pretty ugly, it'd be pretty pathetic, and it'd be pretty desperate. How would you pray? One of the first things I think you notice when you read through chapter 2 is that this prayer is very eloquent. This is not a panicky sort of, get me out of this fish prayer. Jonah's prayer is eloquent because he is praying scripture. Almost every single line of chapter 2 is a direct quote from a psalm. Psalm 3, Psalm 5, 18, 30, 42, 120, and a couple of others as well. Now, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of prayers. There are prayers of gratitude. God, thank you for this day, for this people. Last night, my two-year-old daughter was running around our house saying, God, thank you for the sunset. And I was like, prayer of gratitude. Excellent. And then there's another kind of prayer. This is the, I'm driving a little bit too fast and there are lights flashing behind me prayer. This is the help me Jesus prayer. In the Psalms, scholars refer to Psalms of thanksgiving, gratitude type prayers, and then Psalms of lament, these help prayers. 
are the psalms that Jonah quotes, psalms of lament or psalms of thanksgiving. Jonah only quotes psalms of thanksgiving, which I think is really interesting. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, our anti-hero, prays scripture, psalms of thanksgiving in the belly of a fish. Jonah's a complicated character. His theology is great. He knows his scripture. When he gets in trouble, he prays. But he's also disobedient and passive-aggressive and angry and unloving, and he struggles in his heart and in his soul with the vastness of God's grace. He's an anti-hero. And I think if we're being honest, Jonah is a lot like us, and I certainly can say he is a lot like me. And so my hope this morning is that as we grow as a community, as a praying community, that we'll find some encouragement in Jonah's story. I talk to a lot of people who struggle with prayer. And again, I know a lot of us feel inadequate in the way that we pray. We feel like we failed and so God won't listen to us. We feel like we don't have the right words or the right technique. All these different kinds of things. We struggle with prayer. And I hope Jonah is an encouragement to us again because he does a lot of stuff wrong. But he still prays and God still listens to him. So I think Jonah challenges us to pray honestly. Again, God is not put off by our honesty, not put off by Jonah's honesty. So do not be afraid to be honest when you pray. Jonah challenges us to pray theologically. And I don't mean that we need to use big fancy words when we pray. But do we pray knowing that fundamentally God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting from disaster? A lot of us see God in the complete opposite way. How you view God affects how you pray. Your theology affects how you pray. Because Jonah knew God was fundamentally defined by grace and mercy and love. It allowed him to pray honestly and confidently. And so my question is, do you know God in this way? First John, we read, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. It is through Jesus' work on the cross that we ultimately know God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jesus, who refers to Jonah in predicting his resurrection, is the one who allows us to have relationship with this God who is gracious and loving. So again, do you know this God? And then finally, Jonah challenges us to pray scripturally. Again, Jonah, who gets so many things wrong, when he is at his lowest point, when he's stripped of everything at his core, what comes out? Psalms of thanksgiving. He's someone who knows scripture. Crisis points have a way of sort of revealing what's really there in us, what's really kind of deep down inside. And so the question is, is scripture so in you that when you go through something like that, that's just what gets pulled to the surface? For me, that's often not true at all. I started to get up at 6 a.m. over the summer. It's not because I'm a spiritual person. It's actually because I'm a selfish person. And I like to have a little bit of time to myself before our kids get up in the morning. And so it kind of evolved out of that, but I've sort of taken that time, recaptured that time to read scripture, not for knowledge or study or prep for something else, but just as a way to get it in there so that when these moments come, that's what comes out. Because oftentimes, again, it is not the first thing to come out. 
And recently I've been reading through the Psalms because I want to be able to pray like Jonah. Another Eugene Peterson quote, reading the Psalms is how most Christians for most of the Christian centuries have matured in prayer. If you want to mature in prayer, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. Get that in you. So my hope is that we will grow in our ability to pray and that we will pray honestly and theologically and scripturally. And then I want to give us just one last sort of final practical challenge. As you know, if you've been around for a while, we have this PACE team with us for a season. We're really grateful for them and for what they're going to be able to do. And there's going to be a lot of ways for us to partner with them as they build relationships with youth in our neighborhood and with schools around Oakland. But they were telling me that one of the biggest ways we can partner with them is through prayer. And Sasha was even sharing a story about the last team that he was on was at a school that had suffered a number of tragic suicides. And the church that they were partnered with pretty much just made the decision, hey, well, you guys are there. We're just going to pray for this school. And there were no suicides the entire time the PACE team was there. And so our prayers, our partnership with them in prayer can be a powerful way to help them build some of these bridges and establish relationships and begin having an impact on youth in our neighborhood. What I want to challenge you to do is on the Connect card, there should be some extra ones floating around in the pews. Or if you can't find one near you, you can come talk to me or send me an email, send Stefan an email. We'll get you on the list one way or the other. But if you have a Connect card, I want you to write your name and email and then just something like Pray for Pace on there. And what we're going to do is give that to Jen and Jen's going to create a list and she'll send out a monthly update maybe twice a month if there's something really big going on. But just a real brief email with, here's a good story and here's a couple ways to be praying for us during this month. And so I would love it if as a community we sort of rallied around that and partnered with them in prayer during this time that they're here with us. So take a moment and do that. You can put those in the tithe boxes on your way out, hand them to me or someone else on staff, and we'll again make sure you get on that list. All right, may we grow in prayer, may our prayers be theological and scriptural and honest, and may we bless the PACE team that we have with us by partnering with them in prayer. Let's pray together. God, again, we're grateful for time together, and this morning in particular, we're grateful for the story of Jonah and the encouragement that this strange little book in the Old Testament gives us, that no matter how far we run, no matter what we do, all of the different ways that we fail, you're still there. You're still pursuing us, and you still want to listen and to talk with us, and you hear us when we pray. And so no matter where we are at, whatever we're going through, no matter how adequate or inadequate we feel, may we be a community that prays honestly and boldly, that knows the Scripture well enough to pray Scripture, and that prays theologically in the sense of knowing that at your core, God, you are gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love, May that foundation give us the confidence to pray boldly. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.